Hello and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the creative space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. My guest today is Alexander Wolf. Alex spent 36 years writing for Sports Illustrated full-time until 2016, when he became a special contributor to the publication. As his website states, he has covered basketball at all levels and written from the Olympics, Soccer's World Cup, the World Series, every Grand Slam tennis event, and the Tour de France. Through his writing, he has dealt with such issues at the intersection of sport and society, including race, gender, culture, the environment, doping, education, law, religion, business, ethnics, conflict, and ethics. He is an immensely accomplished writer and dedicated fan of the game of basketball. Aside from being the co-captain of his high school team, he also played professional basketball overseas in Switzerland during his college years. Alex is on the show today to take a deep dive into one of the seven books he has written entitled Big Game, Small World. This particular book is a thoughtful exploration and study of how basketball exists in different parts of the world. Of course, this is fascinating to me. Alex traveled to over 25 places to better understand the game and how we are connected through it. The book, originally published in 2002, is still so relevant and important to this day, and I'm so grateful to Alex for coming on the show and sharing his experiences and ideas with me firsthand. Big Game Small World has already become an important reference and guide for me as I try to engage the concept of place through basketball in my own work. One thing about this episode... um, I got a call during it while we were recording. I had put my phone on Do Not Disturb before the episode started, but I guess, you know, sometimes the phone doesn't fully do it. I don't know if anyone else has had this this problem before where they put their phone on Do Not Disturb and they still get a call. Anyways, I got a call, so at one point in the conversation, you're going to hear that call-waiting beeping sound. Um, Hopefully this will not happen again. I'm usually very careful about it. I was careful this time, and it just worked out this way, so just... um, try to watch out slash ignore that when it happens because Alex is saying something so wonderful at that moment. I I didn't want to interrupt him. um, And I'm so sorry for that. And um, I also hope all of you are doing well and taking care of yourselves and staying safe, um, thinking of everyone and their families. And please don't forget to share this episode. If, If you find it interesting, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it. That helps me out so much. And yes, take care. I was so excited to find it because I feel like it's it's. Um, I had this idea of wanting to go to several different places to see how basketball existed differently around the world, and so, uh, this um, contact of mine, who's a basketball coach uh, in Tibet, he said I had been writing to him about my artwork, and he mentioned your book. He said, "Oh, it sounds like." This reminds me a little bit of um, Big Game, Small World by Alexander Wolf, And I was like, oh, I've got to I got to check this out. So reading your book gave me a lot of, um, well, ideas and excitement about places I'd already been just filling in some of the information, especially having just come back from Lithuania and getting to read about your time in Lithuania and what basketball means in Lithuania, even to the president of the country uh, was so exciting. So. Um, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and uh, I think just so in, from where I counted, and I could be wrong about this, but that you went to 26 different locations to uh, learn about how bas- what basketball means in those places. Is that right? That sounds about right. Um, there were a handful of U.S. destinations, mm-hmm. um, so if you I guess sure. uh, maybe maybe eight or nine of those twenty six were domestic. So you drop those out. The rest would have been countries. Um, you know, there were places I kind of wished I could have gotten to, like Australia, mm-hmm. um, or someplace in the Middle East. Um, but of course, you can't go everywhere. And I was very lucky as a journalist with Sports Illustrated for another oh sixteen seventeen years after the book came out. I was able to to go to Australia to tell the story of Patty Mills of the Spurs and his Aboriginal roots, which was great fun. And then even seeing the, um, the Raptors rise, 
um, during the course of reporting Big Game Small World, I actually ran into Nick Nurse in England. I didn't write about England, but he was coaching a team in uh, in England. And then, of course, Nick Nurse, in a very roundabout way, finds his way to Toronto and coaches the NBA champion. So, um, and their leading fan is is there screaming on the on the bench in the front row wearing a turban. Um, right. So there are all sorts of great ways that that the last uh, 20 years have kind of filled in. It's, it's an ongoing story in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think the last dance, the CSPN 10 parter um, really kind of, since it ends with the 97, 98 season, as I was watching the last dance, I kept thinking, Oh, that sets the table for the year that I spent reporting big, small world. Right. I, I feel so lucky that I I'm I got to reread the book just right after this this last episode of The Last Dance aired because it just sort of led me right into that where you're traveling around the world and around the country and Michael Jordan's impending, uh, sometimes predicted retirement keeps coming up within these different interactions. And I loved being able to track that because I kind of feel like I've been living in like 1998 for the past five weeks or whatever, you know, like going back and <laughs> forth. And it's just so nice to now be able to continue on a little bit with that with that story. Yeah. Um, and, and it, I, I was struck too in episode 10 of The Last Dance, right in the last 15 minutes or so, that Barack Obama comes on camera and talks very specifically about soft power, United States soft power being projected through the NBA and how essential to that Jordan was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, China is probably the, the most powerful example of it. But everywhere, even in Ireland, uh, the, the whole Jordan thing was firing the dreams and the imagination of, of young people. And, you know, I don't think there's any question that soccer is probably the big kahuna of sports globally. Um, But there was a period in the nineties where certainly among young people, basketball had, had leapfrogged even soccer because I think it was easier to participate in and it included um, girls and women as much as boys and men. And um, yeah. And and the fact that while we're otherwise locked down, that not just ESPN in the U.S., but Netflix globally was showing the last dance. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that the interest in it globally was every bit as intense as it was stateside. Yes. And I also um, one thing I was remembering when I, I read your chapter about being in Manila was that one of the most impactful images I saw after Kobe Bryant died was this uh like a mural on a basketball court that was painted of a of, of it's from a photograph a photograph of Kobe and Gigi just on this court that that was finished within like 36 hours or something <clears throat> this whole apartment complex got together to execute uh this this painting or this neighborhood got together and it was just seeing that that, that impact and being reminded through your chapter of that, that's so last, that's still going on today. What basketball means um, in in Manila is still relevant to what what you wrote about, uh, however many years ago. You know the the actual order in which I visited some of these countries, I think, colored the way I perceived what was going on in, in them. And um, I saw China and in, in the Philippines back to back. First, I was in Manila, and. The thing that's so different about those two in the way they process um, American basketball is the Philippines has always had this connection to American culture, you know, beauty pageants and American films and and the NBA passion grew out of that. So it's almost like uh, because it's American, it's it, it's kind of folded into the culture and, and all the vulgarities of American culture get get kind of exaggerated and in the Filipino version of it. Um, and it's very much true in, in basketball, whereas China was this kind of walled off, cut off place. I mean, literally few years before I showed up there in the late nineties, the CBA, the national league didn't even keep individual statistics because it was feared that this would encourage individualism, which would, lead to, you know, retrograde American style commercialism or imperialism or anything that causes somebody wow. to to stand out from the group would be considered counter-revolutionary. So 
the way China processed Jordan and the NBA was very different. It was more about kind of the style of these players. And Jordan was beloved in China because he wore a red uniform and red is an auspicious color. And because he had this, this style to him that was magisterial, that was dynastic, he was an emperor. And it's completely different from the way the, the Filipino processing of Jordan and the NBA was. So um, to hear you describe that mural of Kobe after his death and just the way a presumably very poor part of Manila rallied to kind of pay homage to him. Yes, is very much in keeping with with my memory of Manila and in, and sort of that Filipino essence, you know, the way they process the NBA. Yeah, that's so it's so interesting just remembering your chapter about um, China and what the 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 name or nickname for Michael Jordan is there. I'm wondering if I'm not sure if I'm going to say it right. Um, but this these two uh, Mandarin letters that means the first means skillful and ingenious, and the second means uh, to shoulder or carry. Yeah, yeah, and and when you say the two together, Chao Don, it almost sounds like Jordan, Jordan, wow, Chao Don, yes. which is this. It's total coincidence that it would sound out the way it does and would mean what it does at the same time. But I think that's one of the things that turbocharged the Chinese embrace of Jordan. There was this sociolinguistic handle that people could grab onto, and it was so apt. Um, and that, this is all stuff that if, if I hadn't gone to China and this is the equivalent of, uh, uh, of uh, Marv Albert, a guy named uh, Xu Zicheng, who's the most well-known NBA play-by-play guy on China Central Television, if he hadn't taken me by the hand and kind of showed shown me around basketball culture and life in, in the country, I never really would have been able to, to learn all this stuff. But um, it was hard not to think of that as the last dance wound down and uh, it made clear that what would follow would be this kind of global explosion as a result of the Bulls through the 90s. Right, which and it also just speaks to this I, this appreciation of him as like a, a spirit, the spirit of him rather than like the, the physical uh, being in a sense that um, th- that will outlast his, the the idea of him outlast like himself, in a sense. And and his accomplishments were almost completely divorced from anything statistical. You know, he was an NBA scoring champion reliably, sure. but that that didn't figure at all into the way the Chinese venerated him. That was just sort of byproduct. And um, and and you know, I remember asking. My friend Big Shu over there. What? What about Shaq? What about Dennis Rodman? What about Allen Iverson? And he just slapped each one away. No, 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 no. Shaq is just too big, and Rodman is too immodest, and Allen Iverson is too individualistic, and the way he dribbles the ball high is probably a palming violation. You know, he would. Jordan obviated all those kinds of concerns because he was on this different planet, this different plane. And as as Big Shu told me, every dynasty has to have its emperor, and um, the Bulls had been dynastic, and here we have uh, the guy sitting on the throne. Wow, it's uh, yep, yeah, so interesting to to have that perspective. Um, so I feel like we have to go back a little bit now because <laughs> we've already jumped in, but I'd love to just talk about. Um, as I understand it, you had been a basketball player yourself and had played overseas in, in Switzerland um, and had played in high school. Um, That's all true, yeah. And But you're also reporting on, on basketball um, throughout college, is that right? Yeah, so I, I played the way, you know, millions of kids had played high school, pick up. Um, I was lucky after two years in college where I'd been a student journalist on the side um, through a friend who was a Swiss American, I was able to hook on with a club team in Switzerland. And at that point in the, the mid to late seventies, basketball in Switzerland was pretty crude. So somebody like me who'd been a co-captain of my high school team could go over there and there'd be a, a almost like a Peace Corps kind of role for me to, to, to spread knowledge and, and work with kids and do a little refereeing on the side. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, 
but then I got back into college for my last two years and went into journalism and at Sports Illustrated. And the timing of it was just about right that um, there were these stirrings internationally and it was clearly going to become more of what we needed to cover. Um, players from overseas were showing up in the college ranks. Um, the Olympics were becoming a little more competitive as we moved through the 80s. And then players from overseas were actually coming to the NBA and sticking. And that got accelerated with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, and then, of course, we have the Dream Team in 92 in Barcelona. So this was a real unfolding story um, through the first, say, 15 years of my professional time at, at SI. Um, and it was by the end of the 90s that I realized there's a, a bigger story to tell here um, than all these individual stories. And that's what led to the book. And had you made, um, you know, the book moves so fluidly between these spaces, you know, you're getting off the plane, you're jumping on a plane, like you're bouncing around so much. And I'm just wondering the actual process of choosing where you were going to go to explore basketball. If that was a list that was sort of set in stone before you started this, or it evolved and changed as you learned when you went to different places. That's a great question. I'm, as I recall how it all worked, I had a notion before getting on a plane of what I wanted to pursue. For instance, I knew in Israel, I'd heard about some of these basketball rabbis who would convert mostly black Americans to Judaism and make it easier for them to play for Israeli club teams. And many of them, it turned out I had heard, um, loved life in Israel and ended up settling there. So I, I knew going to Israel that that was the framework of what I was curious about, but always, um, and I, I say so in the, in the introduction to the book, that when you go, you, your preconceived notions start to fall away. When you mm -hmm. go and actually get in country and you're on the ground, you see things, you hear things, you pursue things that, that do force you to call an audible and, and, and change what you're carefully landing plans might be. I was lucky that by then the NBA had a lot of contacts in some of these countries where they were trying to get a marketing foothold. So with a few well-placed calls, I could find people like Big Shoe in China who could very quickly orient me. And China is a great example where I just knew I needed to go to China because I knew that they had gone crazy about the Bulls in Jordan and the country was changing and the game was was getting a, a adopted um over there but i didn't know the specifics and how you know how to be coloring inside the line so sure. so it was um it, that was a classic example china when i got there i knew what i was gonna only then would i discover what i'd be writing about whereas israel i had a better sense of gee there's a legend of this guy all c perry who converted and had this up and down um kind of redemptive storyline to his career. And everything was slightly different. The U.S.-based chapters, um, I had a, a better sense, as you might imagine, sure. um, of how they would fit in. But, um, you know, Lithuania is a great example, a country you're familiar with and their basketball culture. Um, I just knew that small population, about 3 million people, but they punched way above their weight. And it was one of the rare countries in the world where basketball was number one, that soccer wasn't number one. And those right. two things right there uh, said, oh, there's got to be a story. But exactly what that story would be, you had to hit the ground. Right. And it's so interesting, having read your chapter about spending time in Lithuania, I think, you know, so close to when um, the Soviet occupation ended. You know, I th you were there six or seven years after uh, the they won the Lithuanian national team won bronze or sorry silver <laughs> no bronze at the um, ninety two Olympics they were the other dream team um, funded by by the Grateful Dead um, and then just thinking about my own experience and my own sort of pre preconceptions of what Lithuania as a place would be like and how that was really turned upside down once I arrived um, as I think happens so often, like you're saying. So that was a, an exciting um, chapter to read when you were talking about driving through Lithuania with um, sort of your, your 
fixer there, the person that you were set up with there as a contact uh, to sort of explore the country and, and see basketball games, uh, and that the roads, uh, this this guy who's driving you around is saying that the roads were so different when he was growing up, it would take maybe a whole day to get to get a distance that now takes three hours because the roads were so poorly maintained before. Yeah, and it's not a big country. Um, and now not only could you drive across the country in uh, a few hours, but every 10 to 15 miles, there'd be one of these gleaming new kind of mini marts with with uh, gas pumps. Um, so you could see things changing really, really rapidly. But of course, you've been there so much more recently than I have. Um, you know, you, if we were to compare notes on your Lithuania and my Lithuania sure. from 1998, there'd be this huge gap between them. Yes, like post EU. And um, I mean, I just one of the things that I was so surprised by was that there's free Wi-Fi almost everywhere you go. That's a public space. Um, you know, this excellent uh, Internet access in like all the bus stations um, and, and, and places like that. And that just uh, was not something I was expecting. And, and so sort of putting to to or dispelling some of the the stories and myths and and just things that you hear secondhand or um, on the news about different places. It was really, that was really exciting thing to me. Yeah, no, it's um, sometimes smaller countries, uh, it's just easier to standardize. uh, And and it makes sense. Um, You know, and and Lithuania is a pretty homogeneous country. It's a very proud country. Um, And it's no great secret that having uh, cheap or free and widely available broadband is just such a driver now uh, of everything. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, integrating um, some of those Eastern European countries a little more thoroughly with Western economic life, I think had, um, that helped somewhat too in, in terms of, uh, you know, the top club teams in Lithuania being able to compete with ones from France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. But, um, you know, also just the fact that it's so ingrained in Lithuanian culture, basketball is associated with freedom. We've both seen that great documentary, The Other Dream Team, that you just mentioned, and that captures it so well. Um, yeah, no, it's really um, – the Philippines is probably the other country that made that kind of an impression on me. Basketball is the top sport Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you can just fall into a conversation with anybody and use basketball as this touchstone. And, uh, in the same way, if you're say in Costa Rica, you can talk about soccer with anybody and it instantly will engage a stranger. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad you had a chance to, to experience that, um, where hoop is in the water as it were. Yes, Definitely. And I, I think I, I mean, I had, I had known that, of course, um, long before going, but just seeing, uh, um, you know, when I landed in Vilnius, getting off the plane and going to baggage claim, there's a basketball hoop attached to above the the area where the, the baggage claim is, you know, that carousel, and there's some balls on the side in a basket that you can grab and and shoot hoops while you're waiting for your package and I just had no idea that that was gonna that was gonna happen (laughs) you know that that I know I knew it meant something there that maybe it didn't mean in the United States and I think that that's so interesting because um, much of the artwork that I've made in response to basketball in the United States is about um, or you know dealing with some of the the issues of um, race within basketball and uh, uh, in the NBA and the WNBA at the professional level, at the college level. Um, and that is not something that translates into Lithuanian culture because, like you're saying, it's so homogeneous that it's uh, it doesn't make sense to make work about race and basketball in Lithuania. It makes sense to make work about basketball and, and freedom and what basketball means as far as pushing back on, on the oppressor. Uh, so that was just an interesting thing that that I discovered when I was there that that explaining my work didn't translate to what basketball meant in Lithuania. Yeah, and every every country I visited there was a slightly different twist on it and it's funny I would try to do um reading in advance or on the plane going over there. And it would be at first I I try to get very broad um books that, or magazine pieces 
or scholarly articles that that describe the country in broad terms. Um, and then I, I would kind of want to focus in a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, occasionally, there were there had been stuff written about the basketball specifically in that country, which was hugely helpful too. But um, you know, just reading histories of places like Lithuania or reading about the Philippines and that weird love-hate relationship with the U.S. and celebrity culture um, is so great. I envy you that you had that moment landing in Vilnius at the baggage claim, which, I mean, that's the kind of anecdote that I I crave when I was working on my book because <laughs> I was in baggage claims, uh, you know, every single port of call I landed in. And uh, boy, that would be the way to to advertise. I guess the closest moment I had to that um, with the hoop there, the bag claim in Vilnius was uh, when I went to Bhutan and the guide, you had to have a guide in Bhutan because they control tourism and you just can't get into the country unless you have a pre-booked tour. Mm-hmm. And the guy that uh, they'd assigned to me uh, showed up wearing a Boston Celtics hat. He was a huge Celtics fan. <laughs> 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 it was a great moment. And it turned out that he'd gotten a hat from another tourist, a client from the Boston area who had gotten to know each other really well, obviously, during the, the Bostonians time in in country with him and when the Bostonian got home he knew that Cherub loved the Celtics so he sent him uh, uh, this hat and he now wore it all the time Um, so that was uh, that was an auspicious sign yes just moments that reaffirm your purpose maybe in life and at that moment (laughs) that that uh, remind you that you're on the right track yes indeed yeah yeah, and I, I think when you go to an exotic place, and yeah, Lithuania is exotic. Bhutan is very exotic. Just to see that little, you know, the bellhop in Malaysia who's wearing a uh, a pin on a lapel, you know, an NBA logo. It's it, it's just a little something that breaks the ice. And right, um, you know, obviously the same way when you traveled for your projects, places like Lithuania, you're looking, you're actively looking for these little affirmations. Um, I was too, um, and scribbled, eagerly scribbled them down when I saw them. Um, but they would almost always then lead to conversation and the conversation that would lead to something, you know, deeper and more profound that I could then play around with in a chapter. Right. And, um, I'm wondering, um, in relation to that, how, you ended up your writing practice. You're taking notes the whole time that you're in in these places and gathering information. And then, would you take a stab at writing about uh, in full what what just happened to you as as a section, or w- was this something that happened after after you had traveled to all these places over the course of this year? Did you then sit down and say, "Okay, now I start now I start writing from the notes." What I would do over the course, it was probably about a, a year, um, is I would chunk the travel. So there would be, uh, you know, the Philippines and China were done consecutively on the same swing. It made sense um, that they would be done that way. Um, then a swing through Lithuania and Poland, um, Italy and the Balkans uh, chunked together. So I would I would take the trips, go home to New York um, get out of my notebook in some way and do some of the writing, uh, at least draft the chapter mm-hmm. and then, um, plot the next little tranche of travel. And, you know, it was one of these cases where if, oh, for this trip, I might have to pay cash, but then I get this bounty of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> so then maybe for the next trip I could use miles. And, um, so it was a little bit of a logistical challenge. Um, but there were a couple of times I was able to, you can really catch a, a break on airfare if you buy one of these round the world tickets okay and where you you buy the ticket and you have an unlimited number of stops but you have to just make sure you're going in the same direction okay so twice i was able to stitch together these itineraries where as long as i was heading the same direction you know i could zag from brazil and then uh you know up to london and then down to israel and you know, and, and knock off um, four or five countries on one ticket. Sure. And it became came really economically uh, more sensible. So, and then you get get all those frequent flyer miles. But I had to, you know, just to do laundry and get off the road and pay bills and 
catch my breath, I would wind up back in New York from time to time. And what was your average length of stay in in the countries? I mean, I'm sure it differed from place to place, but was there like a certain amount of time that you wanted to spend each place? Yeah, I'd say average amount of time in each country would be um, three to five days generally. Um, you know, if it were really exotic or a long haul flight, uh, there, you had to build in a day or two to, to recover and kind of get mm-hmm. your bearings. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't have the luxury of spending too much time because it, it got to be really pricey and there were other places I wanted to get to. And that's one of the reasons a lot of the spade work had to be done in advance, you know. So, um, for instance, in the Philippines, Kenito Henson, this uh, broadcaster and newspaper columnist who uh, is really well known and understands Filipino basketball inside out and actually travels to the NBA playoffs and the all-star game every year. Um, Kenito was a guy I'd been put in touch with and I swapped emails in advance of my travel. And then once I hit the ground, very quickly connected with him. And, you know, if there was a little bit of light logistics setting up of interviews and so forth, he'd he'd be great for something like that. And that really helped maximize time. And frequently there'd be some event in China, getting to see this game between Ao Shen and um, Yao Ming's team in Shanghai when he was just an 18-year-old. Yeah, that was uh, um, <clears throat> crazy to read about, too. Yeah, it was a real scene. It was it was a, a scene with a Nike representative who was all excited because uh, Yao Ming's team, the Shanghai Sharks, had come back from this huge deficit at home and won this game against this mighty Chinese rival. And uh, Nike desperately been trying to find the first Chinese, homegrown Chinese players that they could hitch their wagon to. And, and now it looked like Yao Ming was going to break through. So I felt that I really lucked out witnessing uh, that and it helped yeah. capture what was going on in China. Yeah, that was so exciting to just think about. Um, well, I think oftentimes when by the time people reach the professional level in the United States, um, we sometimes are missing the story that that brought them there, especially from other countries, of course, now with with social media and all of, you know, how the Internet works. We can track players from a very early age that are showing a lot of promise and, and know their stories before they reach that level. But it's it was so exciting to think about Yao Ming um, and sort of the the excitement that he was causing in China and before uh, he got to the Rockets and sort of that that beginning stories of his both his parents being basketball players and things like that. It was just, it was a really, it was a great nugget. Well, and then we got to know Yao Ming um, pretty well in the States during his time with the Rockets. You know, he had such a winning personality. Uh, there was a wonderful documentary made about him, I think, where that personality really comes through. Uh, he had this playful sense of humor. Um, you know, all of that was was concealed. I didn't have any chance to see that. He was an 18-year-old sure. who, you know, was still kind of a work in progress. But um, you're right. To have that kind of origin story that you can attach to an NBA career, you know, even if it was studded with these injuries and interruptions, um, really rounds it out. And, you know, that's what you as an artist and I as a, a journalist story arc, you know, you're trying to tell a story somehow. And um, I feel that a lot of what I was able to do in this book was to tell kind of the first chapters of a lot of things, um, especially now as the years have elapsed um, that, yeah, I mean, there've been Israelis who have played in the NBA, but okay. What was Israeli basketball like through the seventies, eighties and nineties? Sure. Um, or Lithuanians. There have been plenty now of Lithuanians. But do we really know how tied up basketball is with Lithuanian sense of freedom and breaking away from the Soviet bear and, and so forth? Um, no, we, we really don't. And it's an important piece, I think, to, to consider. So um, I feel that the book kind of stands as this companion to consuming a lot of basketball today. Yes. And I think it's so that point about basketball in Lithuania being a a way to show um, sort of to push back on the oppressor when, you know, the Lithuanian team would play, when when, um, Jalgiris would play the Moscow team during the Soviet occupation, what it meant for Lithuanian people to have their team beat the Russian team. 
um, even though during the Olympics, the players would then, uh, the Lithuanian players would play for the Soviet team at that at that time at during those moments when the Lithuanian team could beat uh, the the team in Moscow, like that was such a huge deal, and that was something I never considered before before going there. Oh, so I, I think that those are yeah, just so rich. And and one thing that really drove it home to me was to talk to the president of Lithuania at the time, who, when these scores would get reported, uh, say Eska Moscow playing against Jalgiris, this guy who was when I visited Vilnius was now the president had at that time been in exile in Chicago and consumed that result, that upset, you know, Jalgiris winning, you know, that was a huge thing to him yes. and his family, you know, as a you know as a as a refugee or an exile, and, right. Um, and to hear to sit in his palatial office and and hear him explain that joy really drove home for me uh, exactly that thing you're talking about um, against the oppressor. Yeah, I think even the the language that that I had always thought of that period of time as the Cold War, and it's not referred to as the Cold War there; it's referred to as the Soviet occupation. That was a really important distinction for me to make almost immediately, so I could speak about it in a way that would sort of fit with what the, how the Lithuanian people that I was dealing with also thought about it. So adjusting my own perspective that comes from being American is that this is not the Cold War to them. This is the Soviet occupation. Yeah, and it was a real struggle, I think, for some of those great Lithuanian players of the 80s who were playing for Soviet national teams that Lazy Western sports writers would frequently refer to them all as Russians, you know. Yes, <laughs> like, <no>. exactly. <laughs> We're not Russians. The four of our five starters, five of our top six players are Lithuanians, or I guess they had one really good uh, Latvian player too uh, sure. on their national team. But um, but yeah, they were they were from the Baltic republics, and no, they're not. Right. They're not Russians. It's important distinction, really important distinction. <laughs> um, I've even been dealing with this a little bit because studying the story of Senda Berenson, um, when she was born in Lithuania, it was actually Russia. It wasn't Lithuania. This is in 1868. So even figuring out how her, like, she's not, she wasn't Lithuanian. <laughs> so how does her story now live at this village that she was born in? Wow. No, that's, that's fascinating. And t- tell me when... When did Senda Berenson emigrate or her parents emigrate? Uh, 1875. So she was seven years old when they moved. And did they move to Massachusetts? Is that how she and Naismith got to know each other? Yes. So they moved, they emigrated to Boston and their their original last name was Wolverensky. And then through the immigration process, they took the name Berenson um, and... Uh, she ended up going to Boston Normal School of Gymnastics and was hired on for to be the sort of director of gymnastics and physical education instructor at Smith College. And then she read about basketball in a newsletter from the YMCA in Springfield, <laughs> you know, 25 minutes from Northampton. And she just she really liked the sound of it. And she wrote to James Naismith. They were, you know, had a little correspondence going on and she decided to changed the rules so that, I mean, this was up until that point, she had been mostly focused on teaching gymnastics. And she just decided to change the rules so that it would be sort of acceptable for women to play because this was a more aggressive game than what they had done before. And so she adapted the rules and, um, yeah, started sort of scrimmages with her students. And then it led to official games. One of the things that really struck me as I burrowed into the book was how critical to basketball's growth and development and how quickly it happened. It all circles back to it was invented at a school for missionaries. So basically, these these people who were involved in that first game and who got all excited when the game was new and people would would talk about it mm-hmm. and would hang on the walls of that gym – they were going to go off to far-flung places around the world with Bibles and the rules to this new game. And that's how the game got its hooks into China very early. It's also how the game and why the game survived the Cultural Revolution in China, because uh, basketball had already had a chance to to win everybody over. And, and even Mao liked to choose hoops. So wow. um, they, they got rid of all these Western things like classical music. Um 
but basketball was considered too too much a part of the culture already. So literally, so 1891, it's invented. And by the early 1900s, it's everywhere. You've had your first game in, in Paris, the first game in Europe, um, and, and China. And w- once you get Europe and you get you get the Middle Kingdom, I mean, you pretty much planted your, your flags in two parts of the world. It's only a matter of filling in some of the blanks. So um, that whole, w- what you allude to with Senda Berenson and, and Springfield is really part of the epidemiology of this, which is a huge part of, I could have done my book otherwise if it had been, you know, been like a netball or rugby or something that depended on the British to like colonize countries for the game to spread. Um, it might still be working on spreading, but, but because it was, it was sent over with all these missionaries, it was viral. Yes. And that is such a, an interesting point about it that we can very much trace the beginning to now, uh, which is such an exciting part about studying it is that there is this, uh, you know, the, the copy of the, the first ever rules is something that you can go look at and see what James Naismith wanted the game to be originally. And there's just this very um, sort of known beginning that allows you to then work uh, backwards from there or forwards from there as far as what's happened since. And that that also gives it that as as a researcher and as someone who wants to know as much as I can, that sets some structure that'll, that gives you some space to follow, which I'm not oh, sure no. could happen as much with, with other sports. Sorry. Yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. It's um, some most other sports trace their origins back farther than that. And the fact that Naismith lived through those first well 40 years, more than 40 years of the game's right. existence and sat on the rules committee. So he actually was, was had input on his baby and how it evolved um, was very critical to its development. Um, and, you know, the game as we know it today. It didn't really exist until 50s, early 60s. You know, the sort of dribbling wizardry of Bob Cousy and Bob Davies, and because there really wasn't the original rules didn't have a um, didn't have dribbling in them. Right. Dribbling was was basically this. It, somebody got very ingenious and said, "Well, uh, I can drop it and then I can retrieve it, and drop it and retrieve it, and." Dribbling is just a series of drops and retrievals. So, and Naismith looked at it and said, "Well, why not? That's that's clever. I like that." <laughs> and then it got codified into the rules sure. under with his blessing. Yeah. It's so it so those little um, details just ha- as the game um, evolves, it really. I mean, as time moves on, the game really evolves and 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 changes, and things get sort of added in and taken out and. I love being able to to learn about that more. And even when in one of the chapters when you visit with uh, Krum Abdul-Jabbar in Arizona, which is special for me to read, living in Arizona, um, and he says from the what seemed like the beginning of the chapter that basketball is a game that has has roots, um, has like Native American roots, this this particular game and goes back, you know, so many thousands of years before it was known as, you know, basketball by James Naismith. That was also a really important uh, fact that came out of out of that chapter. Yeah, that um, I guess Mesoamericans played played a game kind of like it, um, you know, that had um, ritual meaning. Sure. Um, no, that's absolutely that's absolutely true, and that there is something kind of primeval about wanting to put something in something else that's part of the human experience. Um, you know, Naismith himself had had played a game growing up in Ontario. You know, he said was one of the inspirations. Um, it's very much like that. Um, yeah, and it's you know the Arizona chapter. You, you bring it up, Abigail. It's uh, interesting to me too to. You know, I thought I was really putting on my anthropologist's hat mostly when I was leaving the country, but through Kareem's patience and insights, it was wonderful to to see how he was processing a lot of cultural things about the White River at Apache um, uh, and that he was living and working among um, as 
which were fascinating that basketball was revealing things about that world mm -hmm. um, just as much as say uh, you know a trip to Angola say would have was going to reveal things about that world so um, it's absolutely true I think we we like to think our culture is all homogenized now um, and it is largely in many ways but there are pockets in the U.S. not just around the world but in the U.S. where something like a Native American culture can get its its greatest expression on the basketball court. Yes, and I think even thinking about, like, the rural spaces, um, I know you spent time in Boone, North Carolina, with Michael Jordan's um, college roommate, um, and just what, what basketball can mean in North Carolina versus what it means in New York City versus uh, Kentucky or Indiana versus Chicago. Like, just that, that people playing... Um, on the side of barns versus playing in the middle of uh, skyscrapers. Um, it just has, you know, a different way of expressing itself and a different meaning, I think, in those different spaces, even within the United States. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, you could even throw Utah into that in a way. Sure. Uh, ward ball and these Mormon wards, you know, the, the rec room might have a thin carpet on it. And um, there are probably plenty of kids who've grown up in Utah went on to play it at the U or at BYU um, who learned to dribble on a carpet, literally indoors <laughs> and playing ward ball. Um, and how does that influence the way they approach the game? So uh, yeah, no, it's, you can slice it and dice it within the U S you can, can do the same thing overseas. Um, and uh, yeah, it's coming up on 20 years and I, I would love to do a, um, an introduction to a new edition, maybe in the next couple of years that'll come to pass. And right. And just try to take stock of what's happened in the 20 years since this book came out that even puts a slightly different frame around um, the things I discovered at that particular moment in time. Yeah, I would say it's still such a it's a relevant cultural document. And I can't imagine that that ending as long as we keep playing. Um, and when I say we, I don't mean me because I don't play, but just this idea that like we as a as a fan base, as a as people who are interested in in basketball, keep keep giving it the attention. Um, it's going to continue to to be relevant. I mean, even in the middle of the pandemic, when everything is shut down, like basketball is in the middle of all of that. You know, it's it's the it's the sport making the most news. It was the sport to make the most news when it shut down, and uh, you know, it, it might be the sport to reopen things. It's looking like it. So. That is just, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> there was this great uh, tweet that came from the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, and she had to, you know, very regretfully, I'm sure, had to close all the public parks where people would ordinarily play hoop. She sent a tweet out that said, your jump shot's always going to be weak. Stay off the court. Yes, yes, and, uh, I that. <laughs> You know, that's, there's, there it is, you know, people finding that, that argument, that um, common way to communicate that basketball so frequently provides us. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it is language of its own. Um, and I really want to make sure that we touch on your time, uh, in Sarajevo and the chapters of the book that focus on players, um, that young players that played together in the late 1980s that were from Serbia or was from Yugoslavia at that time. And then after, uh, the the end of the Soviet Union and these these uh, countries broke up into to sort of separate. I mean, these areas broke up into separate countries, and the, this war began between Serbia, Croatia, um, and um, fought over spaces in Bosnia and and places like that, and how that affected this this team that had once been made up of like fellow countrymen were now from different uh, countries, and and how that that cultural event really impacted them as basketball players and what it meant to be as a basketball player playing for your country at that time when you're in the midst of this like devastating, bloody, ongoing, just the worst situation possible uh, war um, between like the neighboring countries. And so that was just a really important, um, uh, those, those chapters were important to me where you're in Sarajevo and also reflecting on this time that has passed where, where these players could, could, sort of play together freely. I think one of the things that really um, put blinking lights around the importance of international basketball, you know, as I was, I was doing my work reporting through the 80s and early 90s, was <clears throat> just recognizing that uh, 
what we once called Yugoslavia was probably certainly per capita where the best quality of basketball was being played that had the best players that their particular style of play that uh, a lot of sound individual skills, wonderful passing ability, excellent shooting ability, also real physical stature, you know, they're tall people, the South Slavs, um, that if ever there were were an entity, a political entity that could maybe give the U.S. pros a run for their money, mm-hmm. it was Yugoslavia. And this is borne out if you look at Olympic results. You know, they were usually in the medal hunt and sometimes played in gold medal games against the U.S. And so when this war came along um, and the NBA started to to find a place for, for players like Tony Kukoc and Vladi Divac and Dino Raja, um, it seemed to be a story that had a lot of really important elements in it to tell, tell a story of the 1989 Yugoslav World Junior Champions who uh, included all those guys I just mentioned when they were teenagers. And they whopped a U.S. team. I mean, just toyed with them. Uh, coached by Larry Brown in the FIBA Worlds, Junior mm-hmm. Worlds. And then to have, as you described it, to have um, their personal relationships with one another jeopardized by this just genocidal war um, as a result of the disintegration of Yugoslavia is just a very poignant story. And um, I'd done some reporting on it for the magazine and was able to do more for the book. And the figure who was most poignant to me in all that was the guy who had coached that world junior championship team, who was a ethnic Serb married to a Croat who had lived in Sarajevo and played for the club team there, Bosna. And uh, Svetislav Pesic, who would go on to coach uh, Serbia later on to the world senior championship in Indianapolis, believe it or not. But he was so... Uh, still very emotional about that experience with those guys and, and mourned the loss of his country. Uh, by his country, I mean a united Yugoslavia. And then to get some of these these guys to talk pretty openly, almost therapeutically, about what the disintegration meant for them as, as family members, as friends with one another, um, you know, how they reconciled their feelings of belonging as Croats or Serbs with what Yugoslavia had once been a uh, very, very emotional story. And there was nothing quite like going back to Sarajevo and, and with Pesic and seeing him in that setting and seeing games there and talking to people who had survived the siege and how basketball had somehow still been played, even as, you know, Sniper Alley was a, the most dangerous place in the world to be. Right. Um, so it was, um, you know, it was a part of the book that I felt really had to be there for all sorts of reasons, but it's probably stuck with me more than any other part of the book. And I think um, one thing that that really resonated with me was that you were there so close to when that was all happening. So I'm reading this the the chapter um, where you spend time in Sarajevo and uh, you talk about basketball players who were, um, yeah, dodging sniper bullets to get to practice and the pressure put on those players to then if they won it meant the whole country won in a sense like there was pressure on the basketball players to lift everyone else up by winning uh it just seemed so recent that when you were actually telling this story whereas now I have like you know 22 years perspective on that to look back on I even it sent me on a a bit of a rabbit hole Googling things about traveling to Bosnia and uh, on the TripAdvisor site, there was a list of things you should know, um, just facts and stuff like that before. And one of them was the war is over, <laughs> that people still have an idea that of of Bosnia um, and 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 maybe surrounding countries that, it, that they are that they are war torn in some way. And, and the first thing on this site was like that that's not true. <laughs> and that was an interesting uh, thing to read. Yeah, they, 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 you're absolutely right. When I went there, if you uh, went over a, a clover leaf on the highway, all those little patches of sod uh, that aren't concrete roadbed uh, were full of gravestones because they just run out of places to bury people. And there were still mortar shell holes and sidewalks and the sides of buildings. And it was very PTSD was kind of hanging in the air. 
Um, it wasn't quite as current as it was in Angola, where the Civil War was still going on from maybe 30 miles outside the city while they were holding the African championships. And everybody was afraid the rebels were going right. to, in a symbolic move, were going to attack the championships themselves. That was a little more of a live uh, event. But I think, um, you know, as a Westerner, to see in, in what we think of as, as the West, which is what Bosnia is, um, there had been an ethnic conflict that, you know, genocide had taken place. Still, still really hard to process. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I found there, as I found in most places, um, people wanted to talk. Um, and I don't think it was just that they were flattered that somebody had come all the way from the U.S. to talk to them. But I think um, you know, you really want to know what we went through. Here, let me tell you. Sit down, and, and I'll pour you a cup of tea. And um, that's that's really moving. That's um, that's why we travel. That's what I hope we'll get back when the whole Corona um, pandemic uh, lockdown is over. Um, you know, it's the beginning of understanding. And you know, I guess I was lucky that it was both travel and it was sport, which is this other great emollient of understanding. That they were both at play when I worked on this. Um, you know, it's like cultural exchange plus sport, which is a, a really potent combination. Right. And and this idea that, that sport is the game and, uh, you know, it's the actual thing that takes place. And, uh, you know, we're, as I'm a, you know, a basketball fan and I want to I want to watch, but I also want to I feel a strong need to participate in some way. And that's when learning about about what basketball means beyond just those 48 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is. Um, that's what makes it really exciting to me at this point. Yeah. And I, you know, other sports are, are playgrounds for that too. Um, sure. Of certainly, course. certainly soccer is probably as much as any, but um, there is something about basketball, I think, because it's played by people who really make their, themselves vulnerable. The uniforms they pull on are pretty, pretty scant. And uh, it's a very intimate indoor activity for the most part where the fans are really players in the drama um, right on top of the action. And um, and I think also those of us who aren't participating have, at the very least, in PE classes, kids are in the driveway or the park down the street. You know, we've engaged in the activity on some level. And as a result, there's an empathy um, it's kind of the dream game, you know, we, how many people tuned into the last dance because they spent par- some part of their life to this point, imagining what it might be like to go up in the air and just kind of hang there and mm-hmm. scratch your chin to decide what you're going to do <laughs> the, way, the way Michael Jordan can. Sure. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of a human, a universal human urge um, to, to do that or imagine ourselves doing that. And um, so yeah, basketball is privileged in that way in some, in some senses. And I think we all, you know, whether you're making your art or I'm trying to tell my stories, it's, we tap into that in mm-hmm. some way. Yes. Um, the other thing that I wanted to make a connection between was this, uh, this watching the last dance and when they covered the 92 Olympics, um, they're the the last dance was covering it from the perspective of the Bulls players, of uh, mostly which was Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan having frustration with Tony Kukoc because at that time their general manager Jerry Krause was recruiting Tony Kukoc to come play for the Bulls, and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen during the USA versus Croatia game really wanted to make Tony Kukoc look terrible, like he wasn't worth recruiting, and then. In the documentary, they slip in the fact that, of course, Tony Kukoc's home country is like facing this this genocide and all this like he's playing for this country that's that's being torn apart and is tearing apart other places. And it just uh, that was such a I wanted more of that because I feel like that's an interesting thing that that for me, I just Tony Kukoc playing on behalf of Croatia uh, meant something in a way that Michael Jordan and. Uh, Scottie Pippen playing on behalf of the United States didn't mean because their countries were in really different places. Michael Jordan is even using the the American flag to cover up his his Reebok logo. You know that's that's how he's that's how he's using his like patriotism. Um, so it just it was really 
That was just an interesting dynamic there, and I, I wanted more from from Tony Kukoc. I think the whole the whole documentary I wanted a little more from Tony Kukoc because that's just an interesting story. Yeah, I, I would have loved more on Phil Jackson because he's such an interesting cat, and the the Steve Kerr material in the last episodes was really rich, and there's probably a whole ten parter to be done on the Warriors and Kerr. But sure. um, one one documentary that's that's really well done that um, might satisfy your Jones here, <laughs> and maybe you've already seen it, is the, the 30 for 30 called Once Brothers, in which no. uh, Vlade Divac talks about uh, Drajan Petrovic. Okay. And it's it, very, very well done, and it's narrated by Vlade. And it's, all, it's, it's what it was like for he, Vlade, as a Serb, to have had this Croat teammate, Drajan Petrovic, uh, and how the beautiful music they had made together on the court and then their relationship was estranged as a result of the war and things that had happened. And then Vlade hears the news that Drajan has died in a car crash. And the movie is really about Vlade trying to come to terms with never having made up with Drajan before his death. And it's a real act of healing and, um, and it's so powerful because it's all narrated by Vlade, who has this lovely resonant voice where you can really hear the emotion. Um, but I highly recommend it, Once Brothers, um, yes. for anybody who's going through through Last Dance withdrawal and felt, sure. as you, you do, Abigail, that there, there was more to be told. Um, that's a great way to get a, a, a better sense in that part of the story. Yes. And that woman that you speak to and, and spend time with in Sarajevo, I'm forgetting, is it her name Mira? Yeah, Mira, Mira Polio, the woman who sells men. Yes, that's she, such a fantastic um, tagline. Um, she, she was an agent for for several players, but both in Italy and and from the Balkans. Is that right? Exactly. Yes, okay. and, and a, a, a very much a Sarajevan and very proud of her city and uh, big personality. Um, and was one of those people that I knew I had to make contact with on the ground. And if I could, that... Um, the doors would open and my notebook would fill naturally up. And she was, she was wonderful. Um, a, a huge character, just a really big personality, um, which basketball has a way of attracting and accommodating. Sure. I know I'm very, I think she's my new Senda Berenson. I'm really interested in exploring um, her story more. Do, do you know where she might be now? I don't, um, but it should be pretty easy to find out. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I might uh, let me. We get offline. I'll, sure. I'll see if I can do some do some poking around and give you a contact or two, and you could you could maybe find her. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I'm. Uh, yeah, I just I found her to be a, sort of a fascinating character, and I'd love to to speak with her more, especially just at a distance from what she had already shared with you. Um, Yes, I, I also I wanted to, to let you know or share with you that I we're hoping my collaborator who lives in Rio de Janeiro, uh, who's not particularly a sports fan, but uh, is interested in sort of the, the broader cultural meaning of sports. He, he was in Lithuania with me and we are hoping to go back to Lithuania in the spring of 2021 and um collaborate with this village that Senda Berenson is from and host a women's basketball tournament in the village like the Senda Berenson basketball tournament. Um, and uh, so that's something that that we're working on. And of course, the virus has put some things on hold. And I don't know when Lithuanians are going to want to let Americans back into the country based on how each each country has handled the virus. But um, yeah, so that's that's like a long term plan is to to have an event in her name. Oh, that would be that would be fascinating. And for the people at Smith College, my wife's alma mater would be um, would be fascinated to know more about um about your efforts because yes. uh, yeah we visited oh, wow. there after returning from Lithuania for about 2 days at Smith and we you know gave a presentation and we're trying to keep them we're trying to basically take the stuff from their archives the about Senda Berenson that we find really relevant and have some of it translated into Lithuanian so that this village museum that the old English teacher at the high school runs can have like a plethora of information about Senda Berenson to share with people that that come through. Um, and I, I think, of, and I'm sure that, that you're familiar with this, but a lot of uh, these smaller Lithuanian villages had horrible massacres uh, during the beginning of the Holocaust where 
they the, a lot of the villages had a majority Jewish population, and then um, all of the Jews were killed and not transported anywhere. There were no concentration camps. So, um, anyways, Senda Berenson and her family are Jewish, and so there's this dynamic there with the Jewish history. A lot of people visit this museum that's there looking for information about a grandparent or a great-grandparent that they believe to be killed in, in the massacre there. So it's used for many reasons, but we're hoping to beef up there what is now a Wikipedia page about Senda Berenson. We're hoping to beef that up a little bit. <laughs> well, and then basketball being that great thing that would connect um, Senda Berenson, Jewish-Lithuanian, with today's Lithuanians, who are largely not Jewish, sure. obviously. Um, but that basketball would be this thing that connects them as um, you know, that, that speaks, to, speaks to that very thing we've been talking about. Right. The through line um, that that sort of both celebrates and erases like cultural boundaries. It's really interesting that we can find both distinction and the thing that we share. Yeah. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Yeah. And I, um, you know, it's not just basketball, but, but sport in general. And we're going to miss it, obviously, this year with the Tokyo Olympics being postponed. But mm. um Yes, celebrating the cultural differences, but also erasing them. It's it's exactly what we're, what you with your art and, and me with my journalism, what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. It's it's nice to to say it out loud once in a while. It's really helpful. Um, and I so, so appreciate you coming on the podcast. Like this book is already a guiding force for me going forward. I feel like I, I want to... Um, uh, carry on some of the, the work that, that you've already done and you're continuing to do yourself. I just feel like I'm a part of something now having read it. So thank you. Well, thank you, Abby. No, it's it, almost 20 years after I wrote it. This is, uh, this is lovely. It's a bolt out of the blue and, uh, <laughs> most, most welcome, but particularly after the last dance, because, um, it's, it's one of those rare kind of shared cultural things, um, that you can maybe not assume, but there's a pretty good chance that, your neighbor also saw it, you know, it's, it's a good touchstone to have. Um, so I still, I'm really glad we were able to make this connection. Definitely. We're in the middle of, of many shared cultural moments and the last dance is just fitting right in. And, um, yeah, it has made me now that the NBA is discussing a July comeback, I'm like, I don't know if that's soon enough, you know, and what, what about the WNBA? What's going on? So I think, uh, yeah, we will just one day at a time. And I'm so glad to have the chance to speak with you. Thank you, Alex. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.